Of course, it was a dismal day. The sky was as leaden as the national mood. Washington, D.C. had suffered incessant storms that winter, and on March 12, 1861, the roads were sticky with mud from the latest squall. Nervous residents could not help comparing the gloomy weather to the turbulent politics threatening the country. Seven southern states had left the Union since the election of Abraham Lincoln, forming a new Confederate States of America. The outgoing Buchanan administration had only half-heartedly defended federal property against the secessionists, and efforts to find a peaceful resolution to the crisis were faltering. Now it appeared that the new government was following the same uncertain path. We are a weak, divided, disgraced people, unable to maintain our national existence, the Republican magnate George Templeton Strong wrote in alarm. The New York Herald agreed. It was a deplorable state of affairs, complained its editors. All joy, all hope is fled. Against this dreary backdrop, a curious apparition appeared about midday. At the stolid neoclassical war department, a large group of military officers in full-dress uniform was assembling, their gold-crested buttons and vivid sashes piercing the dull light. Falling into two columns, they lined up behind Secretary of War Simon Cameron and Lieutenant General Winfield Scott, the Army's venerable chieftain. In perfect formation, they marched to the executive mansion along the tree-lined footpath that connected the two buildings. At the door, Scott himself solemnly rang the bell. The United States Army had come to call on its new commander-in-chief. By one count, 78 men paraded into the East Room. Such a large group overfilled the space, and they began to snake around the perimeter in an undulating line. The officers were resplendent in dark blue frock coats, tall patent leather boots, gilt scabbards, and black plumed hats. Set against the shabby yellow wall covering of the nation's parlor, their presence was all the more splendid. It was a spectacular exhibition, noted one of the company. Another observer thought he had never seen an equal number of such fine-looking men in uniform. They stood at attention, kid-gloved fingers lightly pressing the stripes of their trousers, silently awaiting the president. After a few moments, Lincoln entered, accompanied by several cabinet members. Some officers had been influenced by newspaper accounts to expect an afternoon of jesting, and now they were surprised. The man before them was as clumsy as his descriptions, but his face was deadly serious. The new president had good reason to be grave. Since taking the oath of office on March 4th, he had been confronted with multiple crises, sometimes on an hourly basis. Two days into the job, Lincoln learned that the Confederate Congress had called out 100,000 troops to protect its territory. 
the Attorney General and the Secretary of War had just informed him that there was no legal way to stop the shipments of arms reportedly being rushed to Charleston, New Orleans, and nearby Baltimore. Samuel Cooper, a New Yorker who had served for a decade as Adjutant General of the Army, left his post on March 6th and headed straight for the Confederate capital, taking with him detailed knowledge of personnel, materiel, and federal intentions. On March 11th, the rebel government adopted a constitution containing elaborate legal justifications for a separate nation. A delegate from that nation was in Washington at the moment, under instruction to establish diplomatic ties. Humiliation was in the air as federal institutions unraveled and Southern sympathizers sniggered over everything from congressional defections to the disappearance of patent files. Worse yet, the country was broke. When Buchanan's Treasury Secretary, Howell Cobb, followed his native state of Georgia out of the Union, he left the nation bankrupt. Most pressing was the question of whether to withdraw United States forces from Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. This crisis had been transferred to Lincoln just hours after his inauguration. Since his election, occupation of the fortress had been an emotional flashpoint, a contest between the South's angry belief that it was no longer governed by consent and Northern determination to protect Union prerogatives and Union property. On March 5th, the War Department received a letter from the officer in charge of the garrison, Major Robert Anderson, stating that provisions were nearly exhausted and that Confederate leaders were blockading the harbor, forcing a showdown. Lincoln would have to reinforce the fort or retreat, with all the symbolism that implied.